guns and money. Hey, welcome back to Conduct Detrimental, episode 54. You know, if you've been following us, I, I usually like to assign uh, Giants jersey names to the episode numbers. So episode 54 is the Andy Hedden episode. Dan, my co-host, welcome back. Dan Lost, do you have any idea who Andy Hedden is? I have absolutely no idea who that is, but um, you know, Dan, this is conduct detrimental. We got to throw in some football analogies. That's totally fine. He was blocked by Lawrence Taylor and Carl Banks all those years, and and if there was true NFL free agency back into the '80s, Andy Hedden uh, would be known by many more football fans than just you know a couple of ex, a couple of old Giants fans. So, Dan, what do we have on tap for this week? Well, Dan, we are talking about football, but we're also talking about wrestling, Dan, because what what's that I smell? I smell what the Rock is cooking. The Rock has made a a massive in investment into the XFL. Massive for The Rock, but maybe kind of a blip on the radar for Vince McMahon. Vince McMahon invested about $200 million into the XFL, and The Rock just sweeps it out of bankruptcy for $15 million. So, Dan, uh, I'd love to get into that with you. That was uh, my my favorite story in these past couple days. You know, but we have uh, a couple topics to hit in no particular order, Dan, so uh, we can kind of mix and match. We want to talk, number one, we're going to talk about The Rock and the XFL bankruptcy purchase. There's some interesting, we'll say, issue spotting that you, you saw on the creditor level. Number two, I think we should, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the Pac-12's threatened boycott of the season. And then, uh, you know, I think we have to talk about number three, the Cardinals situation in Major League Baseball, whether players failing to follow COVID protocol now uh, threatens to threatens the season. We're back again with the Marlins. And then, uh, you know, this new NFL opt-out deadline, baseball didn't have their own opt-out deadline. That's why a guy like Yoannis Cespedes can just leave in the middle of the night and not say anything. NFL wants a hard deadline. And then last but not least, Dan, you know, we'll, we'll try to stick to some type of cohesive order, but Antonio Brown is back in the news again today. People might not be understanding the significance of this, but a, a default judgment, the striking of his pleadings on a case as a story that you broke, I think it's, it's very important. There are, maybe people will be surprised. Every time there's an Antonio Brown update, I have about 10 people drop into my DMs and ask me what team I think he's signing with. I have no clue of that. But Seattle Seahawks, that's where he's going to be ending up. You, you, but you, heard, you heard it first. Yeah, but he has eight. He has an eight-game suspension to serve. Anyway, before we get to Antonio Brown, which I, who I refer to as the gift that keeps on giving, we have a couple of big stories uh, to line up first. And you and I always go back and forth with our professional wrestling references. And we like to joke around because you and I are both old-school WWF and WWE fans. But now, for the first time, we really have a wrestling angle on the show. And for the first time, we have bankruptcy law on tap for conduct detrimental. So two firsts. So first of all, Dan, what was your initial impression and perspective on on um, Dwayne The Rock Johnson getting the XFL assets for $15 million? What was your impre- What was your instinct yesterday before some of the later news broke about some of the creditor concerns? So I think at an at initial level, right, who is The Rock? The Rock, you know, I'll try to try to manage the investing references, but Rock is the the literal people's champion, right? He's maybe the most popular guy on social media. He's a, you know, basically a hundred percent approval rating. He's also the people's champion of, uh, of the WWF slash WWE back in the day. But for The Rock, you know, he's gone to have a very successful acting career. He played college football for the University of Miami. And guess what? He plays a, a sports agent on TV that owns an NFL franchise. So this is a guy that checks a lot of the boxes, has the right audience for this NFL crowd. And now on a, just on a, on a functional level, Right. We're seeing a lot of top college basketball players go to the G League now because they're getting paid, you know, in the the low six figures. There is no functional equivalent 
of the G League for the NFL, right? NFL Europe is gone, but that's also an NFL property. So I think there is a, a space here. It's not like the XFL was getting killed in the ratings. It's not like the AAF, no, the, the short-lived AAF is getting killed in the ratings, but it's a matter of having capital. So I think for The Rock, the people's champion, he's, he comes in, he gets this uh, purchase price, $200 million investment by McMahon. He buy, comes in and buys for 15. So for those that know, The Rock's finishing move when he was in the WWE reigning supreme was The Rock bottom. And quite literally, mm. This price hit rock bottom and The Rock is walking into a good buy, but one that makes a lot of sense for him and his brand and, and his audience that he's helped build up. Yeah, it may be a more lucrative deal than it seemed at first impression, because not only does he get the XFL assets, and by the way, this is not a final sale because the XFL, the parent company, the XFL filed bankruptcy. Any transactions, uh, such as a proposed sale, has to be approved by the bankruptcy court judge, and that's a court bankruptcy judge is based in Delaware. This is a Delaware bankruptcy court proceeding, so the rules of bankruptcy will apply. And uh, not only is the Rock supposedly getting the assets to the end of the XFL, but more importantly, I think from the creditor's perspective, he is also acquiring all of the claims and causes of actions against insiders. Now, for those of you who follow or have taken your, your debtor-creditor classes or bankruptcy law classes, there are certain payments that occur within a certain within a time frame around the filing of a bankruptcy petition. Any payments made to insiders within the last 12 months and any payments at all made within the, the last 90 days pre-petition can be voided by the bankruptcy trustee or, or by creditors. And the, the Rock is getting all of those causes of action and potential claims, and they could be worth in excess of $60 million. So yesterday, the creditors or the unsecured creditors committee filed an objection to the proposed sale on a number of grounds, starting with the fact that the sale price didn't yield enough money. It didn't have a sound business purpose. The proposed auction or the proposed sale wasn't adequately marketed, and the bankruptcy estate is essentially going to be stripped of all of these valuable claims that are now going to go to the uh, uh, you know, to, to Dwayne Johnson and his and his investment group. And perhaps most seriously, there's this insinuation that this may be a worked fix or a worked job. Or Dan, worked fix or worked job. I feel like you're missing a word here. This is a work shoot, Dan. This is a oh, work oh, shoot. Oh, we're, we're, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is a wrestling <laughs> podcast here, Dan. I don't well, know this if could, you thought this, this was a sports law podcast. No, this is a wrestling podcast today. This may very well be one of the great all-time wrestling storylines, almost akin to the Montreal screw job in the 1990s. The creditors committee has lodged this bombshell suggesting that there may be some kind of a, an arrangement between Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Vince McMahon, given their you know, longtime business relationship, along with the fact that Johnson is getting all these claims that could be asserted against insiders, including McMahon. Now, within the last 90 days of the bankruptcy filing, Vince McMahon withdrew $1.2 million in capital. And he was, and, and there was also a payment made to a group called uh, Rain Advisors, on, on which McMahon was liable, jointly liable, for, for a $5 million obligation. So there are potentially millions of dollars of claims that could be asserted against Vince McMahon that are now being given to Dwayne Johnson. And of course, Dwayne Johnson might understandably be reluctant to sue his former boss. And here's this footnote in the unsecured creditor's motion to block the sale. In footnote number 10, it says, while the committee has no evidence to support that the proposed buyer 
is affiliated with McMahon or the WWE, other than certain well-known affiliations, the proposed buyer's insistence that the, that the sale include the acquisition of insider claims raises significant concerns and questions about the connections or intentions of the proposed buyer vis-a-vis McMahon and the WWE. Wow. So here we go. So I'm going to throw it just just so people realize. So The Rock obviously made his name in the WWE, but it's not like he's a stranger to the business. And I think that's important why this is being brought up. I mean, just in in the the wrestling world, Rock has appeared, you know, for WrestleManias. He has an ongoing relationship with WWE. He's not, you know, a talent. But if you go on the WWE's website, you know, he's The Rock is there. The Rock is very heavily featured on the WWE Network. So there is an ongoing relationship. So to say that these are two completely separate entities. Maybe they are legally, but there is a blurred line. So I don't, I don't think it's so crazy that that this challenge is being brought up. But I will say this, Dan, in a for whoever's you know following wrestling, whoever understands the kind of the ends of you know the ins and outs, it wouldn't really make sense for The Rock to to have not spoke to Vince McMahon before making this type of bid. There, you would think there would be some type of conversation nowadays. The, there used to be the WWF and WCW. There's a a competing company now called the AEW, and the face of that company, or one of the faces, is a guy named Chris Jericho, who used to be in the WWF for years. Before he went to this competitor, he spoke to Vince McMahon and got his blessing to go to a competitor and help start a competing business. That's obviously a different example, but just to show you that Vince McMahon is the godfather of wrestling. You don't go and anger the godfather without asking for permission. So I, I would find it strange if The Rock, even though The Rock at this point is probably bigger than Vince McMahon, I don't think that's so crazy, that, you know, he would speak to Vince and get his approval on it. But to your point, Dan, those kind of conversations, those are going to be very relevant to to creditors and objectors trying to figure out what the nexus is between this incoming buyer and, and this now Vince McMahon. So Vince invested $200 million into this entity and The Rock's buying it for $15 million. So a lot of people were, and myself included, were yeah. dunking on Vince McMahon saying that The Rock, you know, proverbially gave him the rock bottom. But in a more serious legal sense, You'd think there was a conversation here. So I don't think it's wrong for there to be some further investigation into this. Yeah, there's going to be a hearing in the bankruptcy court on Thursday regarding the uh, legitimacy of the proposed sale. And my, my inclination or my you know gut tells me that this sale is not going to go forward as planned because, you know, it has all the telltale signs. You have a low ball price that's dwarfed by the value of the insider claims. There are over $60 million of claims that could be voided by creditors based upon the timing of when they were made and who they were paid to. So McMahon or the estate is not just getting $15 million, but Vince McMahon is being let off the hook potentially on million, you know, it could be you know multiple millions of dollars in liability on insider claims. So there's much more going on here beyond just the bare purchase price. And the question, you know, exists as to whether this maximizes the value of the estate. And, you know, that's certainly one consideration. The other consideration that the that the court will consider or that the court will focus on is whether this is unduly prejudicial to creditors. And if creditors have potential claims against insiders for $60 million that are going to be extinguished by a sale to the to the to the rock. Then it begs the question of where is the value here for creditors? They will be left with zero value when yesterday or two days ago they were sitting on potential causes of action in excess of $60 million that could have been used for distribution to the to, to the unsecured creditors. So this so, is going to be a very hotly contested hearing. And there are questions in my mind as to whether a court should approve this. So I'm I'm just gonna, you know, Dan, you you've hit the nail on the head here because 
Do you know how crazy it would be for The Rock to sue Vince McMahon? And you're talking about one of the factors for this bankruptcy proceeding is whether, you know, this incoming purchaser maximizes the value of the estate. And that's really contingent on whether The Rock will sue Vince McMahon to collect the rest of those assets. So I find that very hard to believe that The Rock, who got his start from Vince McMahon, A, didn't speak to him, but B, is now going to go ahead and sue him for the rest of that money. So I, I do think that's a fair challenge. And, and Dan, credit to you for breaking that. Um, unless you have anything else, I'm ready to move on to the next one. Yep, I think that, that pretty much covers it. I didn't break it. I just dug deeper and deeper last night and I looked at the bankruptcy filing because the purchase price really stuck out like a sore thumb. It's like, there's gotta be more to the story. What do the creditors have to say about this? Are they pleased? Are they displeased? And when you when you look beyond just the headline and you go into the bankruptcy schedules, the you know some of the legal arguments, it, bego- it, it begins to become clear. Who let the dogs out? For our next topic, Dan, I think we should move on to the world uh, around us. Major League Baseball looks like it is again. Uh, we're we're back. It wasn't now. You know, it was first the Marlins and now it's the St. Louis Cardinals. Dan, well, what are your thoughts on baseball this week? Then the the latest threat to the season. Well, I, I think the name of our show is apt. Proposed to describe the conduct going on on the major league team level. There are players and organizations that are just paying lip service to these COVID-19 protocols, and, and, and players are going out for coffee, bars, restaurants. I mean, in the state of Florida, which is one of the worst areas in terms of COVID-19 impact, you have the, the, the Marlins organization essentially having no control, no organizational control over what, what the players are doing. And they're, they're operating almost independent of any reasonable guidelines. And if, if there's such a thing as conduct detrimental in baseball, you got to look squarely at the, at the Marlins and the failure of teams to take this threat seriously, which is now threatening the continuation of the Major League Baseball season. I mean, I'm a Yankees fan. The Yankees are 8-1, and one, and I just realized that yesterday. Nobody is focusing on the games played on the field. It's being overshadowed by everything taking place around the COVID-19 issue. I mean, this season is almost 15% concluded, and I can't recall any highlights. It's, it's yeah, a strange I- season. It's a strange year, Dan, just on a personal note. You know, I'm in New York. The With the Yankees are big. It's normally one of the biggest stories, especially this time of the year in August when there's supposed to be no sports. But I think that's also the nature of the beast of this weird season where there's now basketball going on. Uh, it's just kind of a, it's an interesting year. But as for the Cardinals, which are really the, the kind of purview today, the Cardinals GM, John Mosliak, he was quoted. This is just a reading from Jeff Passan. His quote, the GM, there's been rumors that the Cardinals, well, first, I guess that the Marlins, got their COVID outbreak started by going to a bar in Atlanta. And that's how that started. So, okay, that's that's the Marlins issue, how they have now 17 tests on the, on the team. Now, separately, the Cardinals, who didn't play the Marlins, have their own separate outbreak. So there's questions, how did this happen, right? We knew exactly what, we have some idea of what happened with the Marlins. So there have been reports uh, from Jerry Harrison Jr., John Heyman, that some Cardinals went to a bar, sorry, went to a casino during the season. That's been lingering out there for maybe about a week. And yesterday, this is the the quote from Mosliak with the the Cardinals GM, quote, I have no factual reason to believe that is true, and I have not seen any proof of that. If they were at a casino, though, that would be disappointing. So, Dan, I'll I'll ask you this. Have you in your your life ever heard the phrase, I have no factual reason to believe that is true? Have you ever heard that before? 
Yeah, that, that, that's almost taking a, a non-denial denial to ridiculous extremes. I mean, uh, the lack of accountability of certain of the, of the team executives is disappointing from Jeter, Derek Jeter, who has you know, basically thrown Major League Baseball on the bus, you know, under the bus when I think fault lies pretty much with, with his management and leadership. And this statement from the, from the Cardinals GM is just, you know, this word salad of, of absolutely nothing. And it's led to a it's led to a real integrity issue within the game because now you have teams that have been playing ten, 10 games, others that have played three games. When you when you look at some of the head-to-head matchups, what stands out to me is not who's pitching or who's playing, but how many games each team has played. You have, a, you have one team that may have played eight or nine games, about to face a team that's only played four games. It really does threaten, in my view, the sanctity and, and integrity and legitimacy of the season because it just seems like you know players are dropping like flies and the Marlins aren't the Marlins anymore and you might as well do as Joel Sherman suggested jokingly is just have a tournament of the eight best teams and and you know just end the season for every other team but it does beg the larger question should there even be baseball right now I mean one positive test in the NBA shut the entire thing down and now we have multiple tests multiple positive diagnosis diagnoses on a per team basis some teams are worse than others they're traveling back and forth across state lines games are getting canceled this is just a cluster you know what and uh, we're getting very close to the point in time where the players and the team's own failures may leave Major League Baseball with no choice but to do something drastic. This isn't on Major League Baseball right now. Maybe you could argue at the very beginning of this process without having uniform protocols and a, and a, and a collective bargaining agreement revision, you could argue that maybe the, the management you know, of, of the league could have done more early on. But now this falls on the team level and the lack of responsibility or accountability on the player and executive level has left Major League Baseball in a very precarious situation. Well, I, I'm just going to say it, Dan, that that quote that I read from Mosliak, it doesn't really add up to me. And there are, I think, some lacking follow up questions. I'm not sure, <laughs> you know, the, Card- the Cardinals haven't been playing games. I'm not sure what the general manager of the team is doing other than speaking to his players, getting answers, finding out, right? We're talking about accountability. How did these players go to a casino? And how don't we know for sure that it happened within the Cardinals organization? So it's one thing to say, we know they went there. We're disappointed. It's another thing to say, I asked the players and they deny it. But to say, I have no idea. But if that was true, that would be disappointing. I, I think is even worse than, than uh, you know, than having the players lie to him. I think it's just kind of a farce to us. So, you know, I, yeah. I'm... I'm just sitting here at a high level. I don't really buy that he didn't speak to the players. I'm not sure why that question was not asked of him. But, but that being said, um, you know, and, and I tried to, I'm, I'm pretty feel pretty passionate about it. But Rob Manfred on Friday, and I it was a, it was a move that he doesn't normally do. Reports were that he told Tony Clark, the head of the MLBPA, that if the sport is not cleaned up and the, and the players don't get their acts together, that he's going to cancel the season by Monday, and that Monday would have been yesterday. So I saw it. I think myself and a couple other people pointed out. If the season's canceled, it's really kind of a, a black mark on Manfred's tenure as commissioner. If that's the only sport that's canceled, uh, basically a non-contact, already you know, already social distance sport. If that's the only one that's canceled, so people were were kind of saying maybe baseball should be canceled, right, Rob? You said if it gets worse, you're going to cancel the season. You said if competitive integrity is questioned, you're going to cancel the season. So Dan, you pointed out competitive integrity is very much in question. You have guys basically having the equivalent of an all-star break the first week of the season, which doesn't make any sense to me. And then number two, after Manfred threatened, if it got worse, he'd cancel the season. 
guess what, Dan? It got worse. But instead of saying, I'm going to follow through on what I said, what what Manfred does say instead is, well, we're going to play. Uh, I'm not a quitter in general. I don't think it's time to quit the season right now. So we're going to keep playing on. And to me, just just from a, I don't know, legal perspective, Manfred obviously went to Harvard Law. He's He's a very smart guy. But you can't. As the, as the highest guy on the Major League Baseball totem pole, within 24 hours of threatening to cancel the season, you can't call your own bluff and say, just kidding, I'm not canceling it, because that is not a real ringing endorsement. And, and there's guys, Trevor Bauer, among a number of Major League Baseball players that are pointing out the hypocrisy, just kind of the flip-flopping of it. At this point, I, I'm just not confident in you yeah. know that we're getting the full story behind the scenes when it comes to Major League Baseball. Yeah, Dan, I have a question for you. Now the NBA and um, the NHL have gone you know to a bubble you know situation with how they're conducting their games. Everyone is on is in a protective environment, playing in one one city and one venue. Why wasn't it practical? For Major League Baseball to do the same thing, because what we're seeing with the NFL and Major League Baseball, you know, really, really underscores the bubble versus non-bubble debate. And those uh, sports that are outside the bubble are finding themselves at much greater threat of cancellation. Why was this not done for Major League Baseball? I, I know the answer right away. It's money. You heard Rob Manfred talk about these comments. He said that it wasn't, I'm paraphrasing, but it wasn't Practicable for baseball, which had a longer season, right? Hockey just has to finish the last 20% of their season. Basketball is the same last 20% of their season. Even, you know, the NWSL, the Women's Soccer League, is a quick tournament. Same with the MLS. Major League Baseball, even if it's a 60-game season, that entails a couple months in this bubble. So I think it comes down to dollars and cents. Not that that's the right answer, but, you know, that's, that's what it is. So, Dan, moving on. Let's move on. So we talked about The Rock. We talked about Major League Baseball. I think it's time to talk about some football. So just to kind of make sense of this, we had a really big story on Sunday. You know, on a more serious note, I remember where I was when I heard uh, the Kobe Bryant tragic news about the helicopter accident back in January. On Sunday, I was starting to have shades of deja vu when a couple hours had gone by. And the only thing we heard from the Mets camp, the New York Mets, was that Yoannis Cespedes was missing. And they tried to contact him and they couldn't get in touch with him. So in our technological world, if you don't hear from someone and it's your team like the Mets and you don't hear from someone for hours, I think you can reasonably assume that something bad has happened to a player. Instead, you know, and and maybe uh, obviously it's good news. He hadn't uh, nothing bad happened to him. He just decided to opt out of the season four or five days into the season. So for those that didn't know, Major League Baseball doesn't have a deadline as to when you can opt out of play. You can opt out in the 10th game, the 20th game, you know, or, or I, think, uh, I think the deadline is actually uh, the end of October. So you can opt out whenever you want, which makes sense from a practical COVID risk level, but maybe not from a sports level because teams need to have some reliability of when they can replace you. So that kind of brings us to the NFL, Dan, which this uh, yesterday has a new agreement in place that the deadline to opt out is now this Thursday. So if you're listening to this, depending on when you're listening to it, that's going to be, you know, Thursday, I think it's 4 p.m. So, Dan, what do you, what do you take of the of the new NFL opt-out protocol and the amendments sure. to the CBA? Sure. First of all, uh, getting back to Suspedis, uh, that is the classic case of a disappearing contract. He had a four-year, $110 million deal that was set to pay him, I think, roughly $28 million this year. And he got run, run over or had an incident with a wild boar on his farm. And the Mets were able to successfully renegotiate that contract to pay him $0.25 cents on the dollar. And now he's opted out or quit. I mean, I have not seen a, a, a d- diminution in contract value as quickly or as dramatically as as this contract, which went from 28 million down to six, now down to pretty much zero. I wouldn't say he opted out. He pretty much quit. 
Uh, but I think there's some fault going both ways here. Now, turning to the NFL, this is a pretty dramatic or, or a pretty tight deadline that they're giving the players to exercise a, basically a career, potentially career-altering decision on whether to play this year. The players have to opt out by Thursday. And, it, you know, it, it does raise a lot of questions in my mind, such as, one, what if a player gets, you know, decides, uh, you know, in a couple of weeks is, you know, he, he's feeling like maybe more confident or, or the situation changes. There are always changed circumstances in life, in business. And, and this decision that the player is making as of Thursday is irrevocable unless, you know, barring a, a family member uh, getting COVID-19. And I think it, it highlights the inequality or disparity in bargaining power between the National Football League and the Players Association because the Players Association has basically capitulated on a, on a tight deadline. And then the opt-out pay is really not that much when you consider that a player who would be considered high risk in baseball not only gets his full salary, right? Doesn't he get his full salary and service time by opting out? There's no comparable provision in this NFL, NFLPA deal. Instead of having 100 cents on the dollar for a high-risk player, the stipend is only $350,000, and the decision has to be made by Thursday. Uh, that is a fraction uh, percentage-wise of what MLB players would get who are also high-risk. And then the other part of it is the $150,000 stipend to non-high-risk players who want to voluntarily opt out. And the, the reason or the justification that the NFL advanced for why they need a tight deadline is that there was a concern that agents would, would uh, you know, it, it would extort or, or use the threat of an opt-out to secure a better contract or a new contract, or that players who are, quote-unquote, on the bubble, a different kind of bubble, would take the money and run. And even though the, the, the even though the hundred fifty thousand would have to be repaid in the event the player didn't make the team next year it's another thing entirely to have to chase the, the player for it so I, I think that was the nfl's dual concerns and the pa caved on it and it just it just really underscores how so many of these issues could have been adequately dealt with in the cba renewal that was done in march of this year so the so the pa ended up holding a weaker hand because the union did not adequately or even touch upon any of these issues when there was ample opportunity to do so at the time the nfl was really desirous of having a long term extension I think you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. You know, the only thing I'll, I'll point out, which I, I do find a little bit interesting and, and kind of I alluded to it, is it fair to allow players like Cespedes to opt out in the middle of the season? Maybe because, uh, you know, Cespedes was kind of underreported at the time, but he has a, a family member that, that had COVID. He didn't want to put them uh, or put additional people at risk. I'm just, you know, on a, you, we always want to play both sides of it, Dan. You have to make the argument. If I'm the Mets, right, or if I'm, you know, the, the Jets, right, C.J. Mosley just opted out. Now I have some ability to sign a replacement or to game plan around a guy not being in it for the season. But mm -hmm. if you just allow players to opt out in week five or week seven or week 10, what what was really the team supposed to do? You know, and at the end of the day, the product on the field is going to be very important. And, you know, I, I don't really think that players should get just kind of an unfettered ability to opt out. Maybe you have to have some advance notice, Dan, right? Like in the city, if I want to get out of my lease, I have to give to two months notice or half the month's notice. So some advance notice is necessary. Cespedes can't be able to opt out with literally no notice in Major League Baseball, and there's no ramifications for it. So I think that was a, a loophole that Cespedes exposed, but I think maybe NFL is going too hard by quite literally having a hard deadline. Maybe you can have it rolling, but I guess, you know, the, the argument there, Dan, if my team is all of a sudden 0-9, right, and I'm a veteran and my team is not going anywhere, 
why wouldn't I want to opt out once the team is 0-9, once I know there is quite literally no on-field reason for me to be playing. So I do under- understand that angle of it, but I think this might be swinging a little bit too far the other way by creating this deadline really before, yeah. before games have even come close to starting. Yeah, I, I don't know. The NFL is a different animal compared to the other leagues. In my view, there's nothing optional about an opt-out because unless you're Drew Brees or you know Daniel Jones, and I can't believe I'm talking about Daniel Jones in the same breath as, as Drew Brees, but for most of the players that are you know not essential uh, core players on a team, opting out at a time when your team quote unquote needs you does carry the risk of being remembered by that team next year. You know how you know how crazed coaches are, college coaches, NFL coaches. Everything revolves around you know 100% commitment and sacrifice. And if you're a player that has a, a very you know tenuous hold on a roster position and you opt out. It does, you know, in, in my mind, potentially hamper your chances at, at being invited to camp next year. And maybe that maybe the coach won't forget. So I think it does it, it does land at the feet of the Players Association for not adequately protecting their constituency in March by flagging all these issues and securing fair terms when the Players Association had the leverage. Well, let's, uh, let's move on to our, our fourth topic. Speaking of players that would love to be invited to a, a camp, let's talk about Antonio Brown. No shortage of Antonio Brown sports law issues in the last, we'll say, year. Antonio has gone from first ballot Hall of Famer to guy who cannot get any t- type of team to take a chance on him. So the news this past week, we have, I guess, two levels of big news. Antonio Brown had been begging, uh, pleading with the NFL to actually issue him a suspension so teams were not kind of guessing as to how long he would be off the field for. I thought it would be at least four games. It turns out it was a, an eight-game suspension, which isn't so crazy given the, the amount of headaches off the field, but that's not really the end of the line because there could be an additional suspension coming for some of his other legal actions. And the news, Dan, I'm going to say that you broke it. You can pretend that you don't break this news, but you, you definitely do. The news about Antonio Brown being held in default uh, on a separate case he had about trashing a condo that's not really a uh, normal for a high profile case for someone to be held in default, having your, your pleading stricken. So, Dan, take take us to what's new in the Antonio Brown world. Yeah, sure. I mean, Antonio Brown didn't just get a, an eight game suspension. I mean, if you if you read Mike Florio or are familiar with some of my tweets on the issue, this, in effect, was a 22 game suspension because for the entirety of the 2019 season, while his status with the NFL was was up in the air, no team was going to take the risk of signing him for fear that if they gave him any kind of guarantee, the next day Roger Goodell was going to place Antonio Brown on the NFL commissioner's exempt list. So as long as the exempt list threat loomed out there in the atmosphere, no team was going to touch him. And there was simply no you know, bona fide reason for that long of a delay in the commissioner's decision to suspend him. You didn't need to take six months to nine months to decide that a threatening text message or that an altercation with the moving company uh, should have justified eight games. I think in all fairness to Brown, this decision should have been made last late last season or at least earlier in the offseason so, so that he could, you know, m- maybe realistically assess his appeal options. But make no mistake about it, there was no way, there is no way that Antonio Brown would consider taking an appeal because he's on his last legs right now. He's 32 years old. And were he to make an NFL roster in 2020, he might very well be the oldest or second oldest wide receiver in the National Football League. And with an eight-game suspension looming for him, I wonder whether he'll receive so much as $1 
guaranteed in any deal from any NFL team. I think this could very much be a career-altering decision. And as a practical matter, he couldn't appeal it because if he did, that would pretty much end any hope of future job prospects. So he was left in an untenable position. And the fact that this suspension did not take into account the civil sexual assault allegations and uh, you know, leaves him open for a potentially totally career-ending uh, suspension if the commissioner or if the NFL determines that it's more likely than not that Antonio Brown sexually assaulted this woman who's suing him in Broward County Court. And then today's news didn't help Antonio Brown either, even though he was, he- he was held in contempt and sanctioned by a Miami-Dade County judge for basically not following any of the court orders or court Dan, Dan, just to be clear, this, this case that you're referring to, the news today, that was for trashing a, a condo unit, right? A couple of years ago, Antonio Brown rented a luxury condominium in Sunny Isles Beach, Florida, which is a sort of an upscale uh, village in North Miami where the condos typically cost or the market value of a condo, you know, rises to the seven figures. So he rented a condominium for four months, supposedly trashed the unit and left it in, in ruins. And the owner of the luxury condo sued him in Miami-Dade County Court based upon the physical damage caused to the unit, the repairs that he had to incur, and the loss of rental income for several months while he got the apartment back in working order. He's seeking over $200,000 in damages. And our good friend, Darren Heitner, was Antonio Brown's counsel in this case for a period of months at the very beginning. And I don't know what happened. Antonio probably didn't pay him or whatever happened. There was a withdrawal by Darren. And then Antonio went unrepresented for many months, even though the court ordered him to you know, bring new counsel in and to litigate the case. And he essentially abdicated and didn't follow any of the court rules. And today or yesterday, the judge by the name of Beatrice Butchko you don't mess around with a judge named Beatrice Butchko. She dropped That's a horrible wrestling name. That's like a dropping the people's elbow, the judge's elbow. Uh, If you heard of the fabulous Moolah, how about the fabulous Beatrice? Well, she dropped the hammer on him and struck all of his pleadings, all of his affirmative defenses, his counterclaims, entered default judgment in favor of the landlord, and is going to schedule an evidentiary hearing to determine the amount of awardable damages to the landlord. And while this may not be on the NFL commissioner's radar in, 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 in terms of being a disciplinary event, I think it just adds to the drama surrounding Antonio Brown and make, it may make teams question or re-question whether they, con- whether they should consider you know, entertaining a tryout or a contract offer. This is just one more nail in the coffin. So I think we, you know, we, we have a lot of thoughts on Antonio Brown, but let's, let's get to our last topic. Um, moving to college level, we had news this past weekend, uh, the Pac-12 group of football players. That's, Pac-12 is mainly uh, schools on the West Coast. It's Oregon, Oregon State, Stanford. You, you guys know the schools. And essentially, they were saying that we are threatening to boycott the entire college football season, unless our demands are met in their entirety. We want you, the Pac-12 conference, to agree in writing to everything that we're asking for, or else we're not going to play. So it sounds like a, a huge ask. And just to be clear, we don't know exactly how many players are involved in this. We just know that there are players representing all 12 of the schools. I've heard reports that it could be a couple hundred. And then I've heard reports that are just unverified. So just to be clear, a couple hundred is one thing, but that's not the entire conference, right? If you said 200 players, that's not not necessarily that many players. It's 20 players across 12 teams, and with the football, you know, rosters being what they are, that's not it's not so crazy. You could still have a football season and find replacements for those guys. 
Now, as we've seen, Dan, in, in professional sports over the years, a strike is only as strong as whether all of the members of that union are going to agree to opt out or agree just to not play. So we have yet to see how many players are actually involved in this. And I think just kind of one more point, then I'll, I'll turn it over to you, Dan. There are reports coming out of Washington State, the Washington State Cougars, one of the teams in the Pac-12, that five players have already been dismissed from the football team for their alleged participation in this letter. A letter apparently penned uniformly by members of each of these schools was published through the Players' Tribune mm. and laid out um, that they wanted, among other things, an opt-out, the ability to opt out of the season, not to lose their scholarship, the ability to get health insurance for six years, six-year scholarships, and the ability to create a, a racial coalition for uh, kind of racial injustice problems at the college level. And then what I thought was the interesting one, where I think there might be a Title IX challenge, the ability for every single NCAA sport in the, in the Pac-12 to get their players to get 50% of the revenue that's allocated in that particular sport. So for football, right, football generates a lot of money. Does it make sense to give 50% of the players, 50% of the revenue to the players, 50% of the school? Sure. The problem is, then in a Title IX context, Title IX is the, is the legal term for making sure that women's sports have enough rights and, and privileges as the men's sports. Just the nature of the beast. I'm not saying anything that's that's just the nature of it. College, men's college basketball and college football are the biggest revenue generators in sports and in the college level. And that revenue is used to kind of fund all of the sports, all of the other men's sports and all of the other women's sports. Just the nature of the beast that those television contracts generate a lot of money. Now, if you take that you know gigantic pie of college revenue and you just give it to the sports that are generating that revenue, be it basketball and football, all of a sudden there are a lot of women's sports, obviously some men's sports, that don't have any money, and they don't have the money to, to fund their, their particular sports. So those budgets would then be objectively dropped. So I think just on a, on a, on a higher level, the Pac-12 players, whatever, however many players involved, this one portion of their claim at least, I think it invites itself to Title IX challenge. So they, they might be better off dropping that particular portion, especially because then we know the timing of, Getting athletes paid, that's going to take more than two weeks to figure out. And they're not not—they're threatening not to report before camp starts. And Dan, yeah. camp starts to start by the end of August. So that yeah. timeline and, is not a realistic one. Yeah, even more problematically, it would make D. Smith look bad if the Pac-12 agreed to this deal. I mean, if the players were, were to receive 50% of revenues, I think that's a better deal than what NFL players get under the new collective bargaining agreement. So I don't think D. Smith would like this deal. I think it's a powerful, symbolic statement. But that's all it is. And where this where this demand, I think, goes off the rails a little bit is through the overreach in asking for the 50 percent of revenues. I think there are a lot of legitimate asks here. Protections against covid waivers, Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, statements and support monies earmarked for financially disadvantaged African-American students. There is a lot that's good here that I think uh, was agreed could, could be agreed to. But I think once you get into the financial components of it, then it begins to look like a, a CBA negotiations. And the players don't have the kind of leverage that NFL players should have, but really don't exercise. But in this instance, I think the, I think the Pac-12 players might have been better served with a probably taking a path of least resistance by focusing on those items that aren't as controversial and, uh, and industry altering as some of the financial demands that they made in this letter. So I'll just say this and I'll end it. I mean, I think we got to pay attention to the Pac-12. Could this be just a big bluff? Sure, but we have to be mindful of that. Dan, anything else before we put, put this episode in the books? 
No, it's just been uh, another another fun week. And while sports is just getting back into form, we have no shortage of sports law issues. I make this point every single episode that the news associated with the legal side of sports never abates. And it just seems like there are more issues than we could take on in any given week. So uh, another good episode, uh, another one in the books. And I'm looking forward to the seminar that, or the Zoom webinar that we're doing in a couple of hours with a couple of different Florida law schools. If you have if you have a chance, you might you may want to catch that on the replay. And then, you know, we'll see you next week for another episode of Conduct Detrimental. Dan, anything on your end? That is it. As always, you can find Dan Wallach on Twitter and Instagram at Wallach legal myself dan lust at sports law lust on twitter instagram the show conduct detrimental at con detrimental and let's put this one in the books until next week (laughs) 